Amen. You may have a seat. Welcome to day 87 of fasting from the sun. That's right. Oh, I think it's up there somewhere. Uh, my name is James. I'm the pastor here at Christ Point. If you are new here this morning, thanks so much for uh, being with us. It is our desire, our passion, our mission here at Christ Point to point people to Jesus. Now, one of the practical ways that we do that as a church family is by establishing a culture of joyful service. We really believe it's a great joy to be able uh, to serve our good God uh, together. So from time to time, uh, it is my hope and desire that you would hear from some people in your church family uh, who are pursuing that alongside of you. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to ask my good friend George, if he would, uh, to come up. George, give George a round of applause. Who here has been hugged by George when they walk through the door? That's right. That's right. Take notes. See anyone you might have missed, George. You can get him on the way out this morning. George, two questions for you uh, this morning. The first one is, uh, why do you serve? Uh, and then secondly, I was wondering if you could share with uh, our people the impact that it has made on you. And uh, because you warned me that you're a talker, I'm going to hold on to the mic. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. Um, so why do I serve and the impact that's done in my life? Um, there's three reasons why I serve. Um, the first reason is because... I feel that God has given me certain gifts, um, and it would be a waste for me not to use them. Um, I didn't know what those gifts were when I started coming here for the first time, um, but by serving at the door um, and saying hi to my church family and loving you guys and hugging you, um, I realized that people tell me that I'm good at it. You know, like if I get here and sing in front of you, um, you guys idea. will be running out the door. <laughs> and if I serve in the church village, um, you know, I'm, I don't have any kids, so I wouldn't know how to do it. But being at the front and hugging you guys and loving on you guys, it's easy for me because you guys are awesome. Um, and you're my church family, and I love you guys. So um, I get to use my gifts, and I don't want to waste the gifts that God gives me. And you guys have gifts, all of you, whether you believe it or not, and you need to pray about what those gifts are and use them, just like I use my gifts. Um, the second reason is um, because by coming here, I've been coming here since 2008, so it's been a long time. But when I started serving, I realized that coming in church and sitting in front of you and listening to the Word um, and reading the Bible... Um, are, and worshiping and singing. I love those things. They're great things. Um, but at the same time, I can't transform lives. I can't build disciples if I don't serve. You know, it's that easy. I could read the word. I could worship. But I need to serve to build disciples and transform lives. Um, in the beginning, when I first started serving in the front, a lot of times I served out of obligation. I didn't understand God's word. I served out of obligation. And slowly people told me how a hug or saying hi to them helped transform them, helped them come to church, listen to the word. And when I first started coming back in 2008, my wife and I, we were struggling with infertility. I was upset at God. Um, 
and I didn't understand the word. I was Catholic. Went through my rituals, never read the Bible. Can you believe it? And there were families here that were serving um, John Corant, um, um, Dave, Shivit, um, James, that, my pastor that I found at the YMCA that brought me here, Brian Goins that moved on. You know, there were so many great families, Phil Bowen, that were here, that were here to serve me with love. And little by little, I started building my faith, and I was crawling. I was barely, I mean, I was crawling. I was a Christian that was crawling, didn't understand, was upset. And little by little, I learned to walk as a Christian. But it was through the families that were here serving me and loving me and showing me what it was to be a Christian that I learned to walk um, so, and be a Christian. So I'm grateful for all the families that were here initially um, that were there to serve me. So I serve also because I want to build disciples and I want to transform lives. Um, and the third reason is there's a lot of things you could do in life that will bring happiness. Like in 2012, I bought my dream house. Prices were very cheap. I got to renovate it. It brought happiness. And then I got the bills. <laughs> and then suddenly the AC broke. And I realized it was fleeting. You know, and I also, you know, bought my car. And then a rock hit the window and it cracked. And it still cracked. And it was fleeting. Um, but when I serve and I use the gifts that God gave me, there's a joy and purpose that you just can't put words into it. You know, you just can't put words into it. And until you first serve and learn to serve using your gifts, don't serve in a way that people tell you to serve. Pray to God, use your gifts, because by using your gifts, it really becomes easy to serve. I don't have to do much at the door to serve. Um, it's just easy. But I, it gives me enormous purpose and joy, and it's selfish. But that's the way that God intended it to be. Service is not something you do out of obligation. You get joy and purpose out of it if you use your gifts and you do it. Um, and so those are three reasons. And I want to say one more thing. <laughs> I know I got two minutes. <laughs> um, you know, since coming here, I've been coming here for a long time. And I learned to walk as a Christian. Um, at the same time, you know, since our church is going through transformation, um, I am challenging myself. And I want to challenge all of us at the same time. Um, James, a couple months ago, um, he mentioned in the sermon how he got a Corvette. He, well, he got to use a Corvette once. He always dreamed of, of driving a Corvette. Um, and finally, he got to use the Corvette. He put the pedal to the metal and drove around the block 20 miles per hour. <laughs> and the person next to him was telling him, you got to floor it. You got to press on the gas. And I think a lot of times as a Christian, even by serving in the front door and doing, I feel like I got a, when I be was baptized here in the pool in 2009, I got a shiny Corvette to drive that goes 180 miles per hour, and I have the power of God inside me 
to drive that Corvette, and I'm going 20 miles per hour around the block, sometimes afraid to hit anything, sometimes. So I challenge our church as we transform to hit the gas all the way, go 180 miles per hour. And the only way that, and the only way that we're going to do that as a church is if we challenge each other, you know, because to become a Christian and get baptized, I didn't have to give up anything. You know, I don't live in a third world country where I have to give up my money and, you know, well, I don't have to give up my money, but I have to give up my family, my friends. A lot of times I have to sacrifice my life. No, I just said I wanted to be baptized. Um, and we're in the richest country in the world, so we don't have to give up too much. I mean, even if I give 10% of my money, my time, and energy, you know, I still have plenty. We're in the richest country in the world. So let's challenge each other to drive that Corvette 180 miles per hour, and instead of walking as Christians, be running as Christians, you know. Amen. Thank you, brother. Uh, no, don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. Uh, I just want you to know that I give thanks to God for, uh, for you. The impact that, uh, that you have had on the lives here is, uh, has been pretty incredible, and the joy that, uh, that you bring on Sunday morning is contagious. And so uh, I love you. Thanks so much uh, for, uh, for your work, for your faithful work over these, e these years. I give thanks to God uh, for you, George, and the way that he has used you and will continue to use you. Uh, in the days ahead. And I want you to know if anyone gets a speeding ticket for 180 miles an hour, the Benevolence Committee will not take care of it. And so you are on your own. But God bless you, brother. Love you. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> you see me drive, James. <laughs> I do, I do, I do. But I do want to say, and <laughs> I do want to say <laughs> that I'm forever grateful to the families that were here initially that served me um, because if you were not here to serve me and for me to uh, get to understand God's word and build my faith, I would not be here where I am today. So yeah. I want to thank you. Thank you, Jorge. I love you, brother. I heard a, a pastor one time say uh, to, his, to his church family that your uh, your seat is someone's sacrifice. Uh, your seat is someone's sacrifice. I, I love that. Uh, well, would you pray with me? We'll jump into the Word together. God, thank you so much for giving us the joy and the privilege of, of serving you. Thankful, thankful this morning for the reminder that uh, Jesus, uh, fully God and fully man, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, I pray that the truth of uh, that word would uh, settle deep into our hearts this morning. God, thank you so much for your word, for your living and active word. Thank you for the ways that you use it to form us, shape us, and change us. Lord, we give you thanks. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do great things uh, for your name's sake. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Well, for, uh, for a little while now, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark. Uh, I know it's become a running joke around these parts because we've spent a good amount of time in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, if you're new to the church or new to the faith, is one of four Gospels that we read about. In the New Testament, Gospel means a good news. Uh, each of the Gospels shows a, a different uh, a picture or emphasis in the person and work of Jesus, and the Gospel of Mark is no different. 
The Gospel of Mark shows Jesus as uh, a servant uh, king. He is one who has come uh, to suffer. The first half of the Gospel of Mark uh, asks a question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Perhaps that's a question that you have wrestled with in your own life. You've thought about it. Maybe you've dwelled on it or studied it. It's a great question to wrestle through because how we answer that question really changes our trajectory uh, for all of eternity. Mark asks the question, who is Jesus? And then it answers the question that it asks. It teaches us that Jesus uh, is a a suffering servant who is king. He is the Messiah. Uh, We read in the the middle of the Gospel of Mark that passage that I just mentioned in my prayer that Jesus came uh, not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you can imagine that even that thought challenged the hearts and the minds of his hearers. Here was the Messiah, uh, the one who had been spoken of for thousands of years, who had come onto the scene not to be served, but to serve others. The last half of the Gospel of Mark uh, asked the question, well, how does he do that? Like, how does this plan play out? And so over the course of the last uh, many weeks, we have been wrestling through that uh, together. This morning, we are going to see that Jesus is the silent substitute who suffered for our sins. It's a lot of S's. He's the silent substitute who suffered uh, to save us. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. It says, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council, and they bound Jesus and uh, led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you, verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. When you think about it, it was absolutely amazing to to consider how Jesus responded when he was wrongfully accused. Think for a moment, church family, to a time where maybe someone has said something about you uh, that wasn't true. Has anyone ever accused you of saying something that you didn't say? Has anyone ever accused you of doing something that you didn't do? Or you, you probably have been on the, on the receiving end of words before that have caused you to think to yourself, um, that's, that's not how it went down. Right? That's, that's not what I said. Right? Students, have you ever had an experience before at school where you've heard friends say something about you that wasn't accurate? Maybe you hopped on social media and saw on Facebook or Instagram uh, someone said something indirectly about you and you're thinking to yourself, that's not right. Right? Everything within you wants to defend yourself in that moment. Maybe you've been at work before and a colleague has said something to uh, your boss or to your supervisor about you and it has cast you in a negative light. Uh, everything within you wants to correct that wrong. 
And maybe you've heard whispers around the neighborhood, other moms in the area that have gossiped about you or your children. And again, there's that part of you that wants to knock on someone's front door and say, excuse me, right? I heard you say something about me that isn't true. It's not accurate. And I've just come over uh, to set the record straight. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond when you are wrongfully accused. Jesus was wrongfully accused and he remained silent. Uh, that is not normal. Right? Everything within us wants to defend ourselves. We want to be right. We want people to see what they don't see. We want people to understand a particular situation from our viewpoint or from our standpoint. We want to right the wrongs. Right? Imagine what it would be like if you were in the courtroom and someone had come to accuse you of doing something that you didn't do. Uh, they present to the judge a mountain of evidence and it just makes you look bad. Right? As you're sitting there and you're hearing the accusations against you, everything within you wants to stand up for yourself. Imagine for a moment, though, that the judge looks at you and says, okay, they've, they've had their day in court, they have spoken, now I would like to hear from you. But instead of defending yourself, uh, you simply say, um, I'm not going to call any witnesses. The defense rests. Uh, we don't naturally operate that way don't naturally operate that way. We, we want the mic. We want people to understand where we're coming from. We want to correct the record. We want to make right uh, the wrongs. And yet Jesus didn't do that. Now there are times in Scripture that we can point to where someone defends themselves. Right? As a matter of fact, Jesus at various times throughout the Gospels and even into the book of Acts uh, told his disciples, hey, you're going you're gonna to go before the leaders and the rulers. Uh, I want you to defend yourself. Don't worry about what you're going to say because the Spirit uh, will give you the words at the right time. Right? Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Acts uh, chapter 24 goes before Felix. Uh, do you remember what, what took place? He was accused uh, by others of saying and doing things that he didn't uh, do. It says in Acts chapter 24, uh, verse 5, that there was a, a man who came to accuse Paul, and he said in verse 5 of Acts 24, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Okay, so there is a group of people uh, who are bringing Paul before Felix and going, this guy is trouble. Right, he's caused dissension among the people. He's uh, brought... Uh, uh, disregard to the temple. And they prayed Paul out, and then Paul has an opportunity to speak, and he says in verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, 
knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He says, you can verify that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And then he says this in verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So, so Paul is accused of doing something that he didn't do, but in this particular instance, Paul defends himself. He says, listen, I just rolled into town. This things that they're accusing me of doing, I didn't do that. Uh, but I will tell you one thing. This sect that they're talking about, well, it, it's really no sect at all. I do worship the one true and living God. And all that to say there are times in Scripture when someone is accused of doing something that they didn't do and people defend themselves. Uh, and yet there's a handful of examples, Mark chapter 15 being a primary one, where someone is accused, namely Jesus, of doing something he didn't do. And yet instead of defending himself, Scripture says that he remained silent. Doesn't that blow you away? I mean, if anyone had reason to defend himself, it would be Jesus. If anyone had the ability to set the record straight, it would be Jesus. If anyone could come to his own defense, it would be Jesus. And yet Jesus does not do that. Isaiah 53 verse 7 speaks of Jesus and says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Have you ever been wrongfully accused before? Um, have you ever caught wind of something that has been said about you that is not accurate? It, it is difficult um, to, to live these words out. It is difficult to remain silent when at times everything within us wants to defend ourselves. Just last night, I was sitting at the kitchen table. We were eating dinner together, and uh, Melissa, I don't know how this was brought up, but Melissa mentioned to me that my oldest son, Cademan, uh, had Googled my name at school. And I thought, why? Why? Like, why are you doing that? And he said, well, I did it because I was in history class and I was bored. And so I told him, I'm like, history is important because if you don't know or understand history, then uh, you're bound to repeat it. And he wasn't impressed by that. And I said, I said, why? Well, like, what did you find? And Melissa said, well, he, you know, he, he found some interesting things. And I'm like, well, what sort of interesting things did he find? And, and Melissa said, well, I think that you might have some explaining to do. And I'm like, what do you mean that I have some explaining to do? And she's like, well, on this particular website that he came across, when you Google someone's name, they rank you. Like five stars is the best that you can. Like if you get five stars, you are above board. 
right? You don't have a record. Like, you can serve with kids. Like, you can, you can get a job. Like, you, like, people think well of you. And I'm like, well, what, like, what did I get? And he goes, well, you got three stars. I go, three stars? Three, that's like a 60%. I'm like, three stars is not good. I am barely passing the game of life. I'm like, why did I get three stars? And it says, well, Cayman says, well, there's this part here that, that talks about um, the fact that you, uh, that you may have been arrested at some point in time. I'm like, arrested? Like, when was I arrested? And Melissa's like, yeah, Cayman did come home from school the other day and ask if you had a DIU. I'm like, a DIU? That sounds terrible. And she's like, well, I corrected him. I said it was a DUI. I'm like, a DUI? I go, I don't have one of those either. I'm like, I drink a lot of caffeine in the morning. If someone pulls me over and does a test for caffeine, guilty as charged. But I'm like, I didn't do that other stuff. I'm like, that website is silly. It's not reliable. It's foolish. And then I grabbed Melissa's phone and I was looking at my three out of five star rating and I scrolled down and I'm like, oh, here's this part where it says, is this you? And you can click on it and, and you can and kind of correct the bad things that have been said about you. And so after saying that those things are not reliable and foolish and you shouldn't do that, what do you think I did? I clicked on it because I wanted to make sure that I improved my star rating. And I thought, this is foolish. I shouldn't want to do this. And yet there was this part of me that was like, ah, I kind of would like to have four stars or maybe even three and a half stars. But I don't want to just have three stars. Uh, and yet I was reminded that there are times in life when, when our star rating uh, might not measure up. And instead of fighting it, we simply walk away from it. So then I started thinking, well, how, how can I do that? How can we do that? If someone says something about us that is not true and we want to set the record straight, like what, what drives us to do that? And then how is it that we too can walk away like Jesus did and remain silent? And one of the things that uh, I thought about is that we can remain silent because as a people of God, we are resting in Christ's righteousness and not our reputation. Listen, as a people of God, we are resting in Christ's righteousness and not our reputation. That means our ultimate aim in life is not our approval numbers. How people view us or perceive us or what people think about us is not ultimate. If we live life to win the crowd, if we uh, live life to win the approval of the crowd, we will be a miserable people because people in the crowd is fickle. Man, it is fickle. It, it changes moment by moment. And so I thought to myself, God, I want your goodness and your righteousness that's been given to me by and through Jesus uh, to ultimately be a source of, of courage and strength for me as opposed uh, to a star rating. I came across a, a theological discussion, debate, or some would call it an argument a number of years ago. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, some people get online and fight about stuff. <laughs> it's weird. 
You can find it all over the place. And there was this a theological debate that people were having. And someone that I knew and that I appreciated, someone who I had read and whose ministry I had trusted came out, and he came out swinging. Man, and I was reading this, and I'm like, you get him. Like, you get him. Like, yeah. He was winning the argument. He was winning the debate. And then I didn't hear from him for like a week. And then he, then he posted another article. And it completely caught me off guard because in it he wrote these words. First, I want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry for saying things in my own defense. One of the things that the gospel frees you to do is to never have to bear the burden of defending yourself. Defending the gospel is one thing, but when a defense of the gospel becomes a defense of yourself, you've slipped back under a yoke of slavery. This is a line that struck me. When you feel the need to respond to criticism, it reveals how much you've built your identity on being right. Because Jesus won for you, you're free to lose. And last week, I fought to win. I'm sorry that you had to see that. Lord, have mercy. I said earlier, there, there are appropriate times in life that we defend ourselves, right? That we bring clarity to a situation, that we stick up for ourselves. But I was struck by that line when he said, when you feel the need to respond to criticism, it reveals how much you've built your identity on being right. right? Lord, Lord, have mercy. Jesus did not come uh, to win an argument. He did not come to win an argument. He came uh, to win the human heart. At least in this instance, before Pilate, Uh, Defending himself was not ultimate, uh, but dying uh, to self was. First Peter, I'm going to save that. There's three principles real quickly. Uh, The the first, there are appropriate times in life to set the record straight. There are appropriate times in life to set the record straight. There are times when someone says something that's off base, that's not true, that's not accurate, and we have to move into situations and go, no, that's, that's not right. Uh, however, secondly, it is a fruitless endeavor uh, to chase every criticism or critique. It is a fruitless endeavor to chase every criticism or critique. It is fruitless. It's fruitless. Because they're always going to be out there, those those. Those thoughts, those, those words, those critiques, those star ratings. So therefore, number three, uh, there are times when you and I will remain silent uh, knowing that it, we may look bad. Right? There, there's times where we're going to walk away from conversations, where we're going to walk away from disagreements, we're going to walk away from situations, uh, even when it casts a negative light on ourselves. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he had the opportunity uh, to set the record straight, and yet he remained silent. But he wasn't uh, simply being passive in this particular situation. Sometimes we think if we're silent, then we just, we don't care, or it doesn't matter. That's not the case. Uh, He wasn't simply being a passive bystander. He was being an active uh, participant in redemption. Look at Mark chapter uh, uh, 15, verse 6. 
It says, now at the feast, he used to, to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison whom had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he had perceived uh, that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Verse 11, But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him uh, to be crucified. That's an amazing picture of what's taking place. There is guilty Barabbas, right? The the murderer. The murderer Barabbas. He's got a track record. People knew it. And then then there's Jesus. Jesus is the innocent one. He is uh, the sinless one. Uh, At Passover, oftentimes, Pilate would release a condemned man to gain support and goodwill of the people. He would actually ask the people. It was common for him to do this. It was like a a, a presidential pardon of sorts, only he would put the onus on the people to decide who was uh, released. And so that's what he is doing here. He's putting it in the hands of the people. And he's like, who do you want to go? Do you want the the condemned murderer, Barabbas, to go free? Or do you want Jesus, king of the Jews, to go free? And you would think that this would be a no-brainer. Jesus is the miracle worker, right? He's walked on water. He's healed the sick. He uh, raised the dead back uh, to life. He walked on water. This is Jesus. He is the sinless Son of God. Why would we release him to the people? This is foolish to even ask this question. It would be like asking a father, who do you want your daughter to date, Tim Tebow or Charlie Sheen? Right? Who do you want to invest your money, Warren Buffett or Bernie Madoff? Right? Who do you want to shoot the game-winning three-pointer, Steph Curry or me? Right? As my father-in-law oftentimes says, there are some things in life that you don't need to pray about. Right? It's just... It's just obvious. This should have been obvious to the people. Should have been obvious. Uh, But they had it out for Jesus. They hated Jesus. And so Pilate, it says, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Listen, be be careful uh, if you are living your life to satisfy the crowd. Right? If, if you are making decisions to appease people, it will not end well. Students, as you navigate your way through junior high and high school in college, if, if you are passionate about pleasing the people around you so that they will perceive you a certain way or so they will think of you in a certain light, that will not end well. Do not live your life to please the crowd. Pilate was doing that, and he uh, released Barabbas. And Jesus uh, was the one who would be beaten. He was the one uh, who was crucified. No, before we are so critical of of the crowd, or before we are uh, condemning of Barabbas, uh, we should uh, keep in mind uh, that we, you and me, Uh, We are a part 
of this story. And because we are the ones who stood condemned. We are the ones with a record of wrong. We are the ones who have said and done and thought things that did not fall in line with God's law. We are the guilty. And yet, uh, Jesus here is being a silent substitute, substitute uh, for you uh, and for me. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you are someone who would say that you're exploring the faith, you're, you're interested in the faith, but you wouldn't necessarily uh, describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, I, I want you um, to know that in these verses there, there is good news uh, for you. Right? This is the good news of the gospel, that God the Father uh, sent God the Son to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death. The punishment that belonged uh, to you and to me was placed upon Jesus's uh, shoulders. He was our perfect substitute. He was buried and he was raised uh, to newness of life. This is the hope that you and I have when we trust in him. Jesus was the silent substitute and he was the silent substitute uh, who suffered. Look at verse 16. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside of the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. Verse 20 says, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out uh, to crucify him. Author William Lane writes, A Roman scourging was a terrifying punishment. The delinquent was stripped, bound to a post or a pillar, and sometimes simply thrown to the ground and was beaten by a number of guards until his flesh hung in bleeding shreds. He was scourged with a weapon that would have uh, bones or uh, lead attached to it, and it would literally tear the flesh off uh, the body. There were times when people were beaten and bruised so badly that they would literally die just uh, from the beatings. That's what's taking place here. A whole battalion, probably roughly 600 soldiers gather around. It says they mockingly put on a purple cloak, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on Christ, and they saluted him. They mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. It was grotesque, it was cruel, and it was undeserved. It was a brutal beating. It was a brutal beating. Uh, no, no movie, no book, or no article or blog post could adequately capture uh, the severity of it. Jesus uh, was uh, rejected. We read in the New Testament that the religious folks rejected Jesus because Jesus was, in essence, a mirror held up uh, to their own souls. Now, he, he called out their religious way of life for what it really was. The social elites rejected Jesus because he threatened their status 
in culture. The politicians and the politically driven rejected him because he was his own man who did things his own way. He did not uh, come to, uh, to win over the court of public opinion. He would not be anyone's political pawn. All of these people rejected him. Jesus traveled the road of rejection. This was the way of the Savior. I'm afraid that more often than not, this is not the Savior that you and I want to follow. We love the picture and the image of the victorious Christian life. And when we think about the victorious Christian life together, it's basically when everything goes our way, right? God gives us our hopes and our dreams. He gives us everything that we want. We don't suffer. We don't experience persecution. We aren't pressed. We don't go through times of difficulty or hardship. Things just kind of fall in line for us. And yet it's amazing to me that when we read Scripture, we are reminded that we follow, like we're all in for a suffering Savior. So Scripture prepares us for this way of life. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you would not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We follow a suffering Savior, and we've been told as the people of God uh, that we too will suffer. And I know it's so easy sometimes for us to look over our shoulders or to read things on blog posts or online or hear about stories that happen out there somewhere, some dangerous place out there, and we think to ourselves, that's not my lot. Like this, this Christian life that I've been called to is really not all that terrible. Oftentimes it seems maybe easier than our brothers and sisters, but it is not normative for that to be the case. Um, for us to experience the freedoms that we experience as a people of God in this place is not normal. It is the exception to the rule. Tom Doyle, the founder of a ministry to Muslims in the Middle East, a, a gentleman that uh, uh, Billy Gwaltney, one of our elders, has had an opportunity to travel with, wrote a book called Dreams and Visions. And in this book, Dreams and Visions, he talks about how many Muslims in the Middle East are coming to Christ because they're having what he calls Jesus dreams. Uh, people are literally falling asleep at night and having dreams about Jesus. Jesus is revealing himself to these people in dreams. And oftentimes there is another individual in the dream with Jesus, someone that this person may not know or have never met before. Uh, But shortly after they have their Jesus dream, they will go to a market or they'll go to the public square and they'll look up and all of a sudden they'll see someone who was in their Jesus dream and they'll approach him or her and they'll say, tell me about Jesus. I saw you in my dream. Who is this man? And so people will have an opportunity to share the gospel, and there are countless stories 
of, of Muslims who are coming to faith in Christ, but, but their invitation into the Christian life is very different than ours. It's very different. They typically ask them two questions. They say, are you willing uh, to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? And the second question they ask is, are you willing uh, to die for Jesus? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? And are you willing to die for Jesus? I understand that our ministry is a different context, right? I understand that the challenges that we face look very different in some ways than the challenges they face. But when I hear stories like that, like I wrestle with that. I wrestle with that because the things that I'm really passionate about, the things that really bother me, my, my three-star rating, when you look up my name, that is not, that is not suffering for Christ. It's not suffering for Christ. And so I read these stories and I hear these stories and I am uh, reminded that a life of following Jesus is not an easy way of life. It's not what we sign up for when we have faith in Christ. Students, I want you to know that life of following after Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you are a son or daughter of the king, uh, will not be easy. Right? Not everything's going to go your way. It's just not. Like things are going to happen to you that you don't want to have happen to you. There's going to be challenges in your life that you never saw coming. There will be battles that you face that you are not prepared for. And I want you to know that that, more often than not, is part of the deal. Men and women, Christ Point family, moms and dads, a life of following Jesus is not the easy life. God, God may have a wonderful plan for your life, but wonderful plan for your life is not the same as easy plan for your life. Right, so, so pray uh, that God would give you the strength and the wisdom and the courage to face what comes uh, your way. Because here's the thing, despite all of the challenges, despite the hardship, despite the persecution, um, it is still worth it. Still worth it. Still worth it. Jesus was uh, the silent substitute who suffered uh, to save us. If you're here this morning and you are one who readily feels the need to defend yourself uh, at every turn, uh, I, I want you to know because of the work of Jesus, you have been set free to remain silent. You have been set free to not have to win every battle. If you are here uh, this morning, I want to remind you that Jesus is your substitute. He paid the penalty uh, for your sin uh, and for mine. Give him thanks. Give him thanks. If you're here this morning, I want to uh, remind you that the Christian life may not be uh, the easiest life, but it is, it is good. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus uh, has brought us uh, to God. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for uh, the finished work of Jesus on uh, the cross. We thank you that, Jesus, we thank you that your uh, sacrifice was sufficient and was enough uh, for us. 
We thank you that you have modeled for us a, a way of life that is unusual and is unique, that you have set us free to not have to always be right, uh, that you have allowed us to uh, experience the joy and the freedom because you have taken upon your shoulders the punishment that we rightfully uh, deserved. And God, I pray as we live this Christian life, as we live a life uh, following after Christ, that you would give us the strength and the courage uh, and the wisdom even uh, when it is difficult. We need your help uh, to do that, Lord. We are not naturally strong and courageous people, and so I pray uh, that you might help us even now. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your Spirit. Amen.